What I do want to preach on are all three of the readings because they're all about discipleship in some way, and there are some of the big questions that we ask over and over again, like, uh, what is the nature of the sovereignty of God? How do we participate in the purposes of God? Is a God that we believe omniscient, omnipotent, and immortal able to change with regard to the way we behave? And is somehow our behavior uh, a way to uh, have God change God's mind about things? And we have this uh, issue raised in the book of the prophet Jeremiah's reading today. We read maybe once every couple of years from the epistle uh, to Philemon. And Philemon is... uh, I want to talk about this. It's really a a note from Paul to Philemon, one of the undoubted letters. And uh, it has some things to say about how far out ahead of the culture and of the the social milieu in which uh, the church finds itself in every age, how far out ahead ought it to be? And uh, what is our obligation as faithful Christians who have been converted with regard to uh, issues of justice and equity, and with regard to understanding uh, the Christian's role uh, in the world. And finally, uh, we have one of those passages from Jesus in Luke's Gospel. It occurs elsewhere in the Synoptics, Matthew and Mark, where he says, unless you hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister and even your own life, you can't be my disciple. Pretty strong. When I was a kid, I always found that hard to bear, you know? So what does it mean? And what the issue is, is what is the cost of discipleship? And what does it mean to be all in? And how do we understand that? So first, Jeremiah. He's probably the most crepe-hangy of all the the prophets, isn't he? (laughs) It's the longest of the prophetic books. And uh, it is actually not written by Jeremiah. It is really a collection of his speeches. And they were taken down by a secretary named Baruch. Not Bernard Baruch, but Baruch. (laughs) And uh, so he, in chapter 36 of the book of the prophet Jeremiah, uh, you will see that Jeremiah says, I've asked Baruch, son of whoever, to uh, be my amanuensis, to be my secretary, and to take these things down. Jeremiah exercised his prophetic ministry from about 627 BCE to 587 BCE with the Babylonian captivity. So for that period of time, uh, we have him as a prophet in Jerusalem, and then the Babylonians come in again for the second time and take the city and we have the Babylonian exile. People are taken away in exile back to Babylon, where Iraq is today. So Jeremiah uses a metaphor for God as a potter. I always feel a little nervous about this. Uh, I grew up as a Christian scientist. My grandmother was a Christian science practitioner for 45 years. I was raised firmly in the bosom of Mary Baker Eddy. 
for a while anyway, until I was a teenager, and then I became an Episcopalian. And there's a hymn that is sung often in the Christian Science Church, eternal mind the potter is, is the opening sentence. So every time I read this, I think, oh no, here we are, we're going back to this. <laughs> but God is the potter, and we're the clay. And so Jeremiah is talking about God forming us in a certain fashion, how things don't work out for the potter, and how the potter needs to reform the clay into a better, uh, into a better pot in some way. When I was in seminary, one of the books we had to read, sounds funny, was called Centering in Poetry, Pottery, and the Person. <laughs> And if any of you have ever done that, you know the throwing of the clay onto the wheel is a dramatic moment. It's fraught with, you know, consequences. You know? So I sort of view every day as getting up and throwing it on the wheel, right? And how do we get centered in some fashion? But here's the thing. Jeremiah is talking about the fact that in some way, uh, repentance, changing your mind, is both divine and human. So we get from uh, the Hebrew Bible, oddly enough, the image of God as absolutely sovereign and omnipotent, and yet at the same time exhibits some ability to uh, change in, in relationship to the creation that he made and called good, particularly to, the, to human beings. And so elsewhere in the Old Testament, we also read about uh, God changing his mind. Nineveh is an example uh, of that with Jonah. And so that he, he does that. So I like to think of this as a passage about how we have a role to play in God's plan. And that there is this kind of, if you will, reciprocity that exists between human beings and God. Some people would prefer the sovereignty of God to be absolute in the sense that everything has been determined or we're marching in lockstep in a certain way and that's how we get to some um, uh, sense of harmony and union with God. But in fact, it seems to me to be and that the weakness of the Hebrew Bible and elsewhere is that there, is, uh, there are processes at work in how this happens. And so Jeremiah is speaking of a concrete situation, which is that uh, in 627, he was in Jerusalem, King Josiah, the reforms, all those things. Uh, doesn't say much about it in his prophetic book, but he was right in the middle of that. And then what happens? Uh, the people get taken away in captivity. So there must have been some kind of a um, lack of cooperation with the divine purposes in Jeremiah's view that occasioned this captivity, this Babylonian captivity. And it's interesting to say, too, that the story or the, or, or the book of the prophet Jeremiah was refined and put into the form that we have it to some degree during the Babylonian captivity by the people that were there. So, you know, our behavior does have consequences, doesn't it? And we're part of we're part of things. So I read that reading and always take that with me.
Philemon, you know, during the Civil War and before, if you in the, were in the Deep South and uh, you preached on this in some places, this using this reading, you could be put in jail if you were a clergyman. Although both sides of uh, the argument about slavery uh, use this book to defend, or this, this letter, to defend their point of view uh, about this, about slavery. Well, here's the story. Philemon sounds to me like a generous benefactor uh, to the church. He's in, he's in Colossae. Paul is in jail. And uh, he writes to Philemon, who he's known, and uh, he asks him a favor. And this is what's happened. He has, Philemon, a runaway slave named Onesimus, who somehow Paul has hooked up with. He may be in jail with him, or he may have known him somewhere in his travels nearby. And Onesimus converted to Christianity and has become an absolutely invaluable aid to him. And he's somebody who's experienced, Onesimus, some uh, profound transformation in the way he understands his life. Paul probably would prefer not to do it, but he's prepared to send Onesimus back to his master. But he's writing him a letter with a favor that he's to take him back uh, as a brother and not as a slave. <clears throat> And uh, he believes that that is something that is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because elsewhere Paul speaks on more than one occasion, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. All are one in Christ. Now that's a pretty revolutionary concept in the ancient Near East where slavery is assumed as an institution. There is in the New Testament, as near as I can tell, except for people's behavior as they understand the implications of the gospel, there is no condemnation of slavery. In fact, Christians didn't condemn slavery until the 19th century. They just assumed it was there. There's nothing in the Savior's words in the New Testament explicitly that uh, criticize slavery. And if you translate from the Greek text uh, some of the parables where most of the time we read servant, the Greek word is doulos, which means slave. So it's assuming that slaves are just part of the landscape, right? Just the way it is. And here we got to the 19th century until we began to realize that this was a grave moral evil and it shouldn't be permitted so Paul's out ahead of things in some way now there are some preachers I read some commentaries about this reading uh, this week to prepare the sermon and some of the commentaries uh, give us the whole business about isn't it awful and it's problematic that Paul doesn't condemn slavery and oy 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 right we're always trying to retroject back into a previous period our own historical perspective about what's good and what isn't. And yet Paul was out ahead. And I always read this uh, and say to myself, you know, um, the way in which we become transformed is through God's 
work on individual hearts in such a way that our manners, morals, and customs become transformed over time. And that process never seems to be over. That's what happened with Abraham and Isaac. We have the archaeological evidence that shows us that it was customary in Canaanite religion to sacrifice your firstborn son. Abraham had gone to the mountain with Isaac to fulfill his responsibility. And when he decided not to do that, to me the tension always is, what does he do when he came back down and walked into the tents and there's Isaac? And everybody else is looking at him and saying, listen, Abraham, you may think that God told you not to do this, but we got lambs that are going to get born and drop dead if you don't do this. The crops won't come up, and there's going to be a lot of huge problems. So get that kid back up there and do, do your duty. Right? We also know from the archaeological evidence that at, during the period in which Abraham if he was an historical person, he probably, in, in, in this case, was a, a tribal memory, a composite. But he was somebody who, uh, from that date, dating, this practice stopped. So I believe God is always at work on the manners, morals, and customs of people. It's a shame it took us so long with regard to slavery. But Paul was out ahead. And so my view on this, and the reason I wanted to preach about it, is that you and I need always to be ahead of the wider culture about issues of justice and equity in some fashion. You know? And that's a hard thing to do. It's easy to say, and it's hard to do. But uh, we need to be, and that's why in, in uh, our own time, uh, the Episcopal Church, for example, has been um, forthcoming with regard to our need to do that with all kinds of people and groups. There is no slave or free. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. All are one in Christ. So that's what this reading really tells us. Here's an interesting little tidbit of biblical scholarship I read about this passage this week. Uh, the canon of the New Testament the order of the books that we have now that we are called the official uh, books of the New Testament. There are other books that are not included in the canon, it's called. This process was beginning from very early on, although the final canon uh, was 369 AD. So even in the first century, there were beginning to become collections of biblical books. Of, we're talking now about the Christian scriptures. Uh, in various locations. And uh, one of the first locations for this to have occurred was in Ephesus. And it, as it turns out, uh, at, towards the end of the first century, there is a bishop in Ephesus by the name of Onesimus. And there is some speculation as to whether or not that's the guy who became a bishop, ultimately, uh, in the church and maybe had some influence on saying, why don't you put the letter about me uh, in, in the camp, uh, in our local camp. So you can, you can take that for what it's worth, but at least it's talked, it was talked about in more than one source when I was doing the, the research 
uh, this week. So, the gospel. When I was a kid and somebody said, you must hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister and even your own life and you can't be my disciple, I thought this is absolutely shocking and I can't believe that Jesus would say such a thing. Because it sounds so strong, doesn't it? Um, then, I, uh, in my early 20s, decided that uh, I wanted to leave my family's business and go to seminary. <laughs> I came from a good family, but as I got older, I developed some ways about me that just weren't right. And I realized the true meaning of that passage. You know, whenever you meet resistance, one of the first things you do is doubt yourself. And sometimes the, res the, the resistance can be mighty. And Jesus is using extreme language uh, to uh, drive home a point about are you all in or are you not all in? Really, that's what it's about. And so he speaks in this fashion. Uh, biblical commentators for a long time have always tried to soften this in some way. Well, they re you could uh, translate it from the original into love less than. You can do all, all of those things are not, not suitable. What is important to say, however, is that in the Semitic world of Jesus, hate did not mean exactly what we we have, it's a very vehement thing when we say, I hate you. Uh, that's pretty strong, isn't it? But what it meant in his time was to distance yourself or to turn away from. So it had some, not a softer view, but it was like I am, I am now putting some distance uh, between myself and uh, whoever is making a claim uh, in a way that... Uh, Maybe they don't know where uh, they begin and end and other people begin and end, for example, which could be a, a big problem, and we all know that it's still with us in some way. Well, you didn't mean you say to your family, I hate you. I was in Barnes & Noble on my vacation. I actually was there more than once, but I was in a Barnes & Noble, and uh, I was walking through the books, and there was a little girl, she couldn't have been more than six or seven with her mother, and she was crying and yelling at the top of her lungs, and she said at one point, I am never going to be happy again! <laughs> <laughs> have you ever felt that way? Right? So that's the kind of vehemence uh, that we think about uh, when we think of hate, but that's not quite uh, what it means. It means to have some sort of distance, some sort of uh, way of understanding that. So um, hating your own life doesn't mean that, that you're called to have some sort of self-loathing. You know, most people don't understand the meaning of humility. They think it's lay down in the door there and let people walk on you. You know, the medieval theologians like Thomas Aquinas would say humility is knowing yourself. It is knowing how high you can reach, what the extent of your reach is. Now, in America, 
during this great entrepreneurial period that we've been in for a long time, we always want our uh, reach to exceed our grasp, don't we? That's what you need to do to have that kind of right kind of drive. It's like the monkey with their hand in the jar with the nut, and they're trying to get their hand out of the jar, and they can't get it out of the jar unless they let go of the nut. Right? I think one of the great dilemmas of the, in the spiritual life for most people these days, all of us, is who's going to let go of the nut first? <coughs> get the hand out. Right? So in some way, humility means a type of self-knowledge and understanding that. And Jesus elsewhere in the gospel speaks uh, about that importance. The other thing that I want to say, though, too, which is important, and that is while this may mean you and I need to have the right kind of distance between those nearest and dearest to us to cultivate some sort of uh, uh, the non-anxious presence, but uh, not to be enmeshed. This is important, but at the same time, uh, when people begin to take the moral high ground about their vocation, the demands of their vocation, and therefore neglect their families, and neglect their responsibilities in one form or another, those are issues. And uh, people can uh, get very, very uh, self-righteous about these things. <coughs> And it's very hard to balance things. I suspect one of the great issues that all of us face in this part of the country, in fact, everywhere now, is having a balanced life and how you do that. You know, this is all easy to say and hard to do. But this passage has something about, to say about that. And it has something to say about you do need to tend to your responsibilities as well. And so we don't want to get too carried away with saying, you know, I've forsaken my responsibilities uh, with those nearer to me uh, in order to pursue a vocation that I believe is godly and necessary. The clergy are some of the worst offenders in this territory. And so it is important that uh, we, we, we're aware of that sort of thing. You know, physicians, attorneys, people who are running their own business, people that are in research and development, they get all caught. You know one of the problems with the, the Silicon Valley, in my view, that I discovered when I moved down here? I didn't know anything about all these double E's and everybody around here doing all this sort of stuff. The fact of the matter is that this is very interesting. It's very interesting. And you begin to get involved in this, and it becomes deeply absorbing. And so it's very easy to say, look, you know, my commitments are such that I've got to you know, focus on this. People in the helping professions find it very interesting. In the great tradition of which we're a part, I find absolutely fascinating. It's big. It's just big. So it's very easy to get uh, distracted. So I take this gospel to uh, have something to do with uh, learning how not to do that to the degree that we, we should and maintain our commitments. The question you need to ask yourself uh, this week is, are you all in or not, and what does it mean? That's a conversation that you need to have constantly with yourself and with those nearest and dearest. And that's what we all need to do. This week, remember that you have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos in big and small ways, and that your behavior in some way affects the way in which the world goes. You count for something. 
if you have the opportunity to express yourself with regard to uh, being out front in some ways that uh, uh, you need to be about matters of, of justice and equity, not big, huge global issues all the time, but ordinary good human decency, and then to say, you know, I need now to uh, pursue my vocation uh, as God wants me to. Amen.